we're going to be flicking around the scriptures quite a lot tonight, so it will be important that you have a Bible open and that you're um, ready to turn to various different passages. Uh, but as we uh, do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, the temptation as we come to hear your words and to listen to a sermon is that we would just want to be amused and to entertain. And the temptation as a preacher is to want to entertain and amuse. And yet in your word, when we see Jesus preach, people are in awe of his authority. And so we pray tonight that you'd help us to sit under the authority of your perfect word. Uh, Lord, we know that those you esteem are those who are humble and contrite and who tremble at your word. And so please give us that attitude as we come and sit under it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Last week in Romans 8, we saw this, that the Christian is someone who has the promise that there is a future glory that far outweighs present struggles. This week, the argument progresses so that Paul says, actually, even in present sufferings, you can be assured that God has a purpose for your good. The promise is that for Christians, there is nothing in this world that will not be employed and intended by God to assist you on your discipleship and to bring you safely and certainly to that future glory. And so we read Romans 8.28, and we know, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Now, how often do we hear that quoted? And we throw it around. Actually, we normally throw it around isolated from its context and probably even shortened. God works for the good of those who love him. What I want us to see tonight is that until we understand verses 29 and 30, you can never truly appreciate verse 28. Verse 28 is the headline, but 29 and 30 is the how. Um, Think of it this way. If verse 28 is the kind of eye-catching exterior of the Lamborghini that you notice as it drives past, 29 and 30 are the V8 engine that is driving everything. Uh, verse 28 is the luscious fruit that you want to enjoy. But actually, verses 29 and 30 are the unseen roots that have given life to that luscious fruit. Until you get 29 and 30, you can never appreciate the promise of verse 28. For we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. At least two questions arise from that verse, which are answered in verses 29 and 30. Question number one, what good? What is the good to which God is working? We need to define that. The second question, what is the purpose? If as a Christian you have been called by God according to his purpose, what is his purpose? And so we're going to answer those two questions tonight in reverse order. Firstly, what is the purpose according to which you've been called? Secondly, what is the good to which God is working? 
Now, in present sufferings, and I don't know what your present sufferings are, isn't it true that there's shed loads of stuff we just don't know? That in the midst of suffering, the general feeling is not one of uh, intellectual knowledge that we're content with, but normally that we feel overwhelmed. Uh, There's loads we don't know. God, why are you doing this? Why have you brought me here? What's going on? And the truth is, there is loads we don't know. And Paul, Paul acknowledges that. Come with me two chapters further on, three chapters further on, to the end of chapter 11. This is important as we track through this tonight. Chapter 11, verse 33. Paul climaxes this stage of the letter. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. There are some things we just don't know. Uh, God's purpose is a sea that is too deep for us to swim in. It is so vast that it is too much for us to Google. Uh, There are some things about God which we just do not know. There are certain things in which he does not need our help. And it is certainly true that he owes us Uh, He owes us nothing. Sometimes it is right to exclaim, I don't know. But actually, verse 28 says, and this we know. So tonight, if if you feel like I'm in the midst of suffering, Paul wants to hand you these verses and say, do you know what, you might not know lots of stuff. You can know this. Uh, This is a rock to which you can swim. A rock that is higher than you, which will help you in the turbulent waters of your present suffering. This we know. So what Paul wants to say to us tonight is that assurance of salvation in suffering can be yours because of God's purpose of salvation. That is to say, you can have assurance of your salvation in the all things of life because of God's sovereignty in all of your salvation. So let's answer these two questions one by one. And the first one will take up most of our time. What is the purpose according to which we have been called? Called according to his purpose. Now verse 29 and 30 detail this purpose. They say for. Verse 28, verse 29, for. Those he foreknew... He also predestined, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, that sums up the purpose of God, the plan of God. The apostle uses four parallel clauses with repeated key verbs that focus exclusively on the actions of God. And they form this chain that is Um, interconnected at every point that spans eternity to eternity. That's why uh, lots of people have called this Paul's golden chain of salvation. How can you be assured tonight in the midst of present suffering? Paul's going to say, because God built this chain and therefore it is unbreakable. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. 
And what we're going to see is, let me put it this way. If you see your salvation as just something that God has done at the cross to make salvation possible, you're actually robbing yourself of the true ground of Christian assurance. That if you see the basis of your assurance as just something God has done to make you savable, you rob yourself of the true ground of Christian assurance. It is far bigger, weightier, heavier, more solid than that. Because it spans eternity to eternity. Let's start off then, work our way through these five words. Those he foreknew. What does that mean? It means that your salvation begins in eternity, and it begins with God. God does not sit passively waiting to respond to us, but God purposefully chooses, sets his love upon, foreknows us. Now, sometimes in the Bible, this word foreknow is used of humans to perceive something in the future. They foreknow. And so some people would take this of God that he looks into the future. He jumps in his DeLorean, types things into the flux capacitor, goes forward into the future, sees those who would put their faith in him, and therefore predestines them. It is his foreknowledge of the actions of people in time and space. Now, actually, I don't think that works. Let me explain why. First, in Romans 829, what does God foreknow? It's not facts about people, i.e. that they have faith. It is just that he foreknows people. Second thing, even if it was that he jumps in his DeLorean, goes to Flax Capacitor and sees their faith, you still have to ask the question, where does their faith come from? Where does that faith originate from? Now, the Bible's answer for that is it does not originate in and of themselves, but it is the gift of God. We could look at John 3. We could look at John 6. We could look at Philippians 1. But let's just go to one place in Ephesians chapter 2, page 1174, if you've got your pew Bible. Where does faith come from? As one author writes, from whence proceeds this faith which God foresees? It's got a wonderful bounce to it. From whence proceeds this faith which God perceives? Uh, Ephesians 2 verse uh, 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, dash, and it is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Even if God were to perceive man's faith, where does that faith come from? It is the gift of God. So what does this foreknowledge mean then if it's not just God looking into the future and seeing those who put their faith in him? Well, actually, this idea of God's knowledge we see most clearly in the Old Testament. Come to another place in the Bible, to Amos chapter 3. Amos chapter 3, which is found on page 918. Now, it is true that God knows everything. He knows everyone. That is what, uh, the big word for it is his omniscience. He knows everything. But notice what is written in Amos 3, verse 2. The NIV obscures it slightly. You only have I chosen 
of all the families of the earth. The word there actually in the Hebrew is you only have I known out of all the families of the earth. Now clearly God knows all the families of the earth because he knows everything. So has he got this wrong? Is he being misquoted? No, what he's saying is, although he knows all the families of the earth, he has particularly, distinctively, specially known his own people. So the NIV just clarifies that by saying he has forechosen them. He has especially known them. This is illustrated. If you read Genesis 4 verse 1, it says, Adam lay with his wife Eve and they conceived a child in the NIV. But again there, the word is actually, Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived a child. Now there is a knowledge that does not result in the conception of a child. And then there is a knowledge that results in the conception of a child. Do you see? There's a difference there. It is one thing to know someone. It is a very other thing to know someone. And so too, God's knowledge of his people is a a foreknowing. He he distinctively chooses them. So we could look to it at Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2, where again this language is used. Out of all the peoples of the earth, I have chosen you to be my treasured possession. And you say, why? Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. It is not because you were greater than the other nations, because you were smaller. It is because I have loved you. Not that I perceived any good in you, any thing in you. I loved you because I loved you. He has foreknown. He has forechosen. He has foreloved us. And so that comes into the New Testament so that God has chosen a portion of all the families of the earth to be his people. Now, Loads of questions come up there, don't they? Romans gives us some parameters to work around. You know, why has he not chosen everyone? Well, Romans 1 to 3 would remind us, no one has sought God. Uh, Everyone has turned away from him. Everyone has fallen short of his glory. It is not, the remarkable thing is not that he hasn't chosen everyone, but that he would choose even one. If we plead for justice... We all get hell. But it is God's amazing mercy that he would save and choose and foreknow some. Romans 9 would go on and say, God has a purpose in not choosing all. And then we get to Romans 11, we see all the depths of the riches of the knowledge of God. They're the parameters around which we work. But actually there is a sweetness to this. If you understand God's love to you, as a Christian, as just one instance of his love for the whole world, you do not truly grasp how much God has loved you. Yes, he has loved the whole world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, but he has loved you in a special way, a saving way. Think of it this way. I love all you guys but I love my wife in a very different way, in a special way, in an exclusive way. I love Sarah in a way that I don't love you. And actually, when it comes to the gospel, yes, God has loved the whole world, but actually, Jesus loves his bride. 
in an amazingly wonderful, superior way. God has loved his church in a way in which he has not loved the entire world. He has foreknown you. He has forechosen you. He has foreloved you. Amazing. Now, what's the next link in this chain? Those he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, notice the chain in these words. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. Not some of those he foreknew happened to get predestined. Those, all of those, specifically those, also he predestined. There's no dropouts in this chain. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. If his foreknowledge is when he set his love upon them... The predestination is where he determines ahead of time their destiny. It is, if you like, the purpose of his foreknowledge. Now again, maybe that causes us to squirm a little bit. Well, he has predetermined ahead of time my destiny. But actually, if you want to see the practical outworkings of this, where do you look? No further than the Lord Jesus. How is he referred to? Well, again, if we went back to Isaiah, where we were in the beginning of our service, in Isaiah, we get this emerging picture of God's servant. In the beginning of the book, it seems to be God's people, but they fail. And so it narrows down to this one man. It's hazy at first, but as clarity comes, it shows us that this one man is going to be God's own son, Jesus. And he is called God's servant. Now, how is he referred? Well, if we go to Uh, Isaiah 42, you don't have to turn there. Isaiah 42, the Lord says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. The servant then speaks in uh, chapter 49. Listen to me, you islands, hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. Jesus is the predestined one. He is the elect one. He is the chosen one. All his ways were mapped out in the Old Testament scriptures so that every step he took was that of the predestined one by the promises of God. Now again, where do we see this most clearly? You look at the cross. Come with me here to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, page 1093. Here we see... Uh, the predestination, the predetermined destiny of Jesus. Verse 23 of Acts 2. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Come again over to chapter 4 of Acts and verse 27. Just over the page. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen. Do you see the way that Jesus' path is predestined by his father? Uh, He was no robot, the most free man that has ever lived. And yet he was walking according to the predetermined plan of God, so too the wicked men that slayed him. What is true of you if you're a Christian? Not only foreknown by God, but in Christ, predestined like Christ, so that you have an amazing purpose that God has set out for your life. 
So back to Ephesians 2. Not only saved by grace, but good works planned in advance for you to do. Amazing destiny that is spanning out ahead of you as you walk your discipleship as a Christian. He has a purpose for you. We see that, don't we, in Joseph's story in Genesis? Shed loads of mess. Loads of times where Joseph thinks, Lord, I don't know what you're doing here. I'm in a prison. I'm in a pit. What am I doing? He comes to the end, Genesis 50, verse 20. You guys, my brothers, intended this for harm. God intended this for good, for the saving of many lives. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. And those he predestined, he also called. Now, do you see again the chain? Not some of those he predestined, he then calls. But those, especially those, particularly all of those he predestined, he calls. Here is where we go from God's eternal plan into history, the historical application of his foreknowledge. Now, what emerges here is that there are different ways of God's calling people in the Bible. There is, in the first instance, the general call, where God and the person of his son says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Where he says, no one who comes to me I will ever drive away. Come to me if you are thirsty. I will give you living water. The general call to all humankind. But again, if we're reading through Romans chapters 1 to 3, how does humanity respond to that call? No one has sought him. All have turned away. All fall short of his glory. All are dead in their trespasses and sins. If you want it in picture form, you just go to the parable of Jesus in Luke 14 of the great banquet. God is the master. He sets the banqueting table. He sends out the invitation. Who comes? Nabdi. They all make their excuses. The general call of God that goes out is met by universal rejection from humanity. And so following this general call, there is another call. The effective call of God that doesn't just offer life to a rebellious humanity, but gives life to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. If you were here this morning, you saw this effective call. Jesus walks up to a coffin in Luke chapter 7, and he says, young man, I say to you, get up. Now that is not just a general call, an offer of life, hoping that the young man can summon in himself from the deadness of his body the ability to arise. But the words of Jesus, specific, effective to this young man, not only offer life, but create life. Do you see? It's the same effective call that we see to Lazarus. In the grave, dead days. Lazarus, come out. The effective call of God is when he not only calls you, but he raises you from dead to life. I guess the question comes, what comes first? Faith or God giving us life? Here it would seem that Paul is saying, God must create, he must call effectively that we might then put our faith in Christ. Those he predestined, he also calls. That's why we started in Isaiah 55 
and we read the words that we often pray, Lord, may your word achieve the purpose for which you send it. The promise is, it always will. What he purposes is what will be. Now, this is not to say that faith is unnecessary. At Romans 1 to 4, the argument is, we are justified through faith. But Paul wants to focus our gaze on God that our assurance might come from this total, expansive, eternal purpose of God. That great old hymn, chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee. Those he called, he also justified. Fourth link in the chain. Notice again the links. Those also, not some, but all. The chain is unbreakable. And here we get to what we've already seen in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is to say that all the, my sin condemns Christ on the cross and all his righteousness in, given to me gives me peace. The amazing justifying work of Christ on his cross. That is what he foreknows, predestines, and calls us to. That we might know the justifying work of Christ. You know, if you're not a Christian, uh, this promise of all things working for good is not for you. It says for those who love God, called according to his purpose. You cannot have the assurance that things are going to work out in the end. The truth is that we all stand before the bar of God's judgment, deserving only of condemnation. But here's the offer of Christ, that he dies upon a cross, that you might no longer know condemnation, but complete forgiveness and the gift of Jesus' record on your behalf. It may be tonight, tonight is a night where, you know, you've heard loads of times from your parents, they've been calling you. You've heard preachers call you. But tonight for this first time, God is calling you, effectively creating in you the life that you could never have in and of yourselves. He is the justifying God. Fifth link. Those he justified, he also glorified. Notice the chain, not some, but those also. The chain's unbreakable. Now what's the surprise in this link of the chain? What's the surprise? We would expect it to say, I think, those he justified, he also will glorify. It's a future thing. Why does Paul put it in the past tense? Well, he's saying from the prerogative and the perspective of God, it is so secure that he can talk about it in the past tense. It is as good as done. Because this salvation spans from eternity to eternity, God can say, it's job done. It's been funny if you're into football. You've got, in the English Premiership, some teams who are competing to win the league and others who are trying to avoid relegation. And at the top end, no manager is willing to say, Do you know what, I think we've won. <laughs> we've done it. And all the managers who are trying to escape relegation, none of them are willing to say yet, I think we're safe. Just in case catastrophe happens, everything goes peat tong, 
and they don't win or they do get relegated. There's a hesitancy to talk uh, firmly about the future. God has no such qualms. Uh, He's not worried about promising something that may not happen. But he says this link in the chain is just as secure as every other link. You have been glorified. That is to say, if you're in Christ, where is he now? He is no longer in the grave, but he is in glory. And if you're hidden in him by faith, as Paul says elsewhere, you are already seated with Christ on high. You have been glorified. Amazing promise. It is as good as done. This is the purpose to which you have been called. This is God's purpose in salvation. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. God has built the chain and it is unbreakable. Now, second question, more briefly. What is the good to which God is working? Well, we come to this in the middle of verse uh, 29. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We've seen already God's purposing of salvation, but here is his purpose in salvation, that you would become more and more like Jesus. He not only saves you by Jesus, but he saves you to make you more like Christ. That is what the good is, that you would be conformed more and more into the likeness of your elder brother, that you display that family likeness. More and more in history, that is daily being transformed. And the battle is, Romans 12, not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but Romans 8, 29, to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And why is this? So that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It was always God's purpose that Christ would not be a son on his own, but that he might accumulate his brothers and his sisters around him. And as they become more like him, he is seen in all his glory. Imagine, let's pick on Craig Bruce. Imagine we all wanted to be like Craig Bruce. And the way we wanted to display that was doing everything we could to become more like him. So we all go out and we buy skinny jeans. And we all go out and get the kind of short sides and the big floppy sweep on top. Now, who is glorified in that moment? Craig, because we all want to be like him. And so as we're conformed to the likeness of Jesus, he is the one who is seen in all his glory. God's purpose from eternity it is that his son might be lifted up. And in part, that is seen in our ongoing sanctification as we become more like Christ. That is the destiny to which God has called you, one that will be finished in eternity. As we saw last week, when our bodies are resurrected and renewed to be like his resurrection body in the joy of the new creation, an heir of God. Now, we've answered the two questions. Now we can come back and admire the exterior of the Lamborghini and dive into this luscious fruit. We must understand the purpose which we've been called according to and what the good to which God is working before we can confidently say, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Why does, why does it help knowing the answer to these two questions? Bring to mind your present suffering. Bring to mind what you're going through at the moment. 
I don't know what that is. So I'm going to work on the basis of one of Paul's. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul lists all these sufferings that he's gone through. The first one he lists is that five times I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Now imagine that fifth time Paul's being lashed. <laughs> imagine how he's feeling in that, you know, I've been through this four times before. Four times within an inch of my life for loving Jesus. How can he claim this promise of Romans 8, 28? Why is it important that he defines and knows what this good is? Well, if Paul thought that the good to which God was working was his health, or his material prosperity, or his increasing career success, how would he feel as he's getting those lashes? Maybe God's not working for my good. Maybe God's not in the driving seat of this world. But if he defines good rightly in that it's becoming more like Jesus, what is the confidence that he can know? Actually, even in this lashing, God can be using this as the furnace to make me more like Christ. As the furnace which to consume the dross which will refine the gold. As the pressure to put on the diamond that will make it all the more precious. As the intensity to put on his muscle to build the growth. Defining good rightly is vitally important to having the assurance of verse 28. The promise is not freedom from cancer. It's not um, relieving your unemployment. But even in these things, God is working for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. What could Paul say in that lashing? This is not out with the all things. But even in this, God is working for my good. But secondly, what else can Paul bring to mind and say, I know this as lash upon lash comes on his back. He can say, I know that I am not out with God's chain. I know that this, it may cut my back, it may break my bones, but it will not break the chain of God's salvation. It will not separate me from the love of God. It will not cut off between God's calling and his justification or his justification and his glorification because those he foreknew, he predestined, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. The chain is God's and it will not be broken. You can have assurance in all things because of God's sovereignty in all of your salvation. Let me read you a quote to finish. Could anything be more consolatory to those who love God than to be in this manner assured that the great concern of their salvation is not left to their own keeping? God, even their covenant God, has taken the whole upon himself. He hath undertaken for him. There is no room then for chance or change. He will perfect that which concerns them. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father,